am Lisa of Two Sober Chicks, half of the dynamic duo known as Julie and Lisa, who bring you the regular series on this podcast. But today we bring you a speaker. Please welcome Bruce from AA 1.0. I'm Bruce. I'm an alcoholic and I'm sober since the 5th of November 1986. And I'm here today because God loves me and another drunk had time. Thank you for asking me. And, um, so I'm supposed to tell you in a general way what I used to be like, not what it used to be like, and what happened to me, and what I'm like as a result of what happened to me. That's that's what they mean. And when they're talking about that, they're talking about the what happened part is how did I establish a relationship with God? And uh, I know that bothers some people, but... You know, but that's the, this is the only solution that we have to offer is what's in our book. And that solution is that we have a spiritual remedy. You don't have to subscribe to any brand of religion, but it's going to become necessary for me to find a capital P power greater than myself. And that kind of rules out doorknobs and light bulbs and such. So when Ebby said to Bill, you got to choose your own conception of God, or why don't you choose your own conception of God? He was still talking about God. And in our book, when we talk about coming to terms with God, we're still talking about God. So I don't have the luxury of creating God in my own image, but I do have the luxury of, of opening my mind up and allowing that to happen. Um. My story begins with, I was, you know, as a miserable 14-year-old kid, I felt like I was on an island by myself. I felt separated and isolated somehow. I don't know where that came from. My family was, my family life was good. There were some things that happened when I was a child, but it wasn't in my immediate family. And uh, they were always very supportive. But I always felt like I was just separated from the herd, so to speak. And um, like I was dropped off maybe even on the wrong planet with all the beautiful people that knew why they were here. And I didn't feel that way. And so at, at 14, you know, I participated in uh, in the sports programs in school, but I didn't like hanging out with the jocks. And I and I support and I was uh, in the uh, I made good grades, but I didn't like hanging out with all the good grade makers because they were a little too nerdy for me. And there was this one guy in particular that I met him outside the high school building, uh, smoking cigarettes in between classes. And he was he was somebody I looked up to. He had real long, pretty blonde hair and blue eyes and all the girls liked him. And he got all kinds of attention, not necessarily the kind of attention that you would want to get, but he got all the attention. And and I, you know, he and I struck up a friendship and one night at the high school football field, uh, by the way, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. So it was cold out this time that I'm talking to you about. And um, one night at the high school football field before a game, we met behind the bleachers and he produced a bottle of the very elegant wine with the lovely screw top known as Mad Dog 2020. And uh we took a few belts off that bottle and and that was the and the magic of alcohol occurred for me at that moment and if you're an alcoholic of my type then you understand exactly what i'm talking about if you're not an alcoholic of my type then you have no idea what i'm talking about 
but that alcohol hit my system. And all of a sudden I felt like there was a bridge that got built between me and the rest of the world. And suddenly I didn't feel so different. And, um, as, uh, as one of my mentors in AA said, I looked prettier and it wasn't so cold outside. And that was, that was the start of my, uh, of my path of destruction, if you will. But one of the things that I, that I like to remember and stress, especially for new people, is that before the alcohol had the magic, there was the, there was the upset 14-year-old kid that wasn't happy. That could that felt alone and felt isolated. When you read Bill's story, he talks about good things and bad things right off the bat, and how alcohol helped those things. Right, he got love and applause, and being treated like a hero. And he discovered drinking, and that was a wonderful thing. And then later on, he says, "And then I felt very lonely, and again, I turned to alcohol." And that's that was a thing that happened in my life too. Good things and bad things. All of it could be made better by having a few drinks because of the way it made me feel. And, and so, you know, and I won't spend much time talking about drinking. Whenever I go to a speaker meeting, you know, I'm, I look at the clock and I go, man, I hope this guy gets sober in about 15 minutes because I really know how to get loaded. I want to hear about getting sober. And um, so I did all the things that alcoholics do. I drank up cars and relationships and jobs and houses and, you know, family and all that stuff. You know, the one thing I will say is, you know, I'm a musician. Uh, I'm a retired stagehand, but but my sideline has always been playing music ever since I was a kid. And I played in bands all the time. And, and so I will tell you that my first wife, you know, you're in, and you know, there's, it's hardly ever do you ever hear somebody talking in an AA meeting that they don't number their spouses, right? So uh, I refer to her as plaintiff number one. And um, there were more. But you know, you're in trouble when the guys in the band bring the equipment truck over and move your wife out of the house. And that's all I'm going to say about all that. That kind of gives you an idea of some of the unmanageability that was going on. I just, I drank and drank and drank. And if I was awake, I was drinking. And I, sometimes I had a bottle by the bed and later on in my drinking, I had a bottle in the fridge. I was a whiskey drinker and uh, well, I would drink anything, but I was primarily a whiskey drinker, two fingers in a water glass, right? Ice is nice, but it's not necessary. I don't drink stuff with branches and umbrellas and stuff in it. I want to get where I'm going. And um so, so later on in my drinking, I ended up with a bottle in the refrigerator because I found it didn't come up quite as fast if it was chilly. And, uh, and that's how it was. And, and all of this occurred by the time I was uh, 24 years old. So I was on the accelerated plan. I also did some things that enhanced my drinking, and I know you know what I'm talking about. I spent a little bit of time as an amateur pharmacist when I was drinking and uh, tried to make some money that way. And uh, I just wasn't good at it. I kept sucking up all the profit. Uh, but I would, you know, I did all this stuff and, and it was always, was always just beyond my reach, that feeling that I, that I wanted. And so um, I got introduced to alcohol. Well, I got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous at the age of two weeks old because my father was in AA before I was even born. 
so I'm an AA brat. I've been, you know, he used to take me along to meetings with him and I'd hang out with him on, on especially on Sundays. And, and so I would go to these meetings and the first meeting that I went to, I, like I said, I was two weeks old and I was in a bassinet. And, and in those days, the, the ladies, mostly Al-Anons, but the ladies sat on one side of the room and the men sat on the other side of the room. And they just kind of passed me around the ladies' table while the speaker was trying to speak. And we were having our little conversations, you know, talking in baby babble and all that. And so I've been disrupting Alcoholics Anonymous meetings my entire life. And I still disrupt Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. I say things that are somewhat controversial, but they're based on my experience in AA and my understanding of the literature and how it's applied to my life. But, but the point of that is that I had a preconceived idea of what Alcoholics Anonymous is when I got here. And a lot of us do have a preconceived idea of what AA is when we first get here. So for those of you that are new, or maybe even some that have been hanging around for a while, you know, if, you, if you've been to treatment and you come here, you have a preconceived idea of what Alcoholics Anonymous is. And, and if you've uh, watched TV commercials or you've, uh, you know, been to a few meetings, a few of the open discussion meetings, you have an idea, a preconceived idea of what Alcoholics Anonymous is. And if, or if you've ever watched the TV show Mom, you might have uh, a preconceived idea of what Alcoholics Anonymous is. And what I have found is that none of those things are what Alcoholics Anonymous is. They can be a part of it, but Alcoholics Anonymous is found in our book. Alcoholics Anonymous is not somewhere that you go. There's a program that's written in our book that if you consider that the first maybe thousand people or so that got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous did so sitting in their home or wherever it was they were camped at reading a book that they got in the mail. There was no dance. There was no going to dinner on Friday nights. There was no picnics. There was no intergroup. There was no where and when. There was none of that because there were no meetings. And so they put all the information they had in that book and they tell us right in the beginning of it. Um, the AA program found in the front portion of this book has remained unchanged. And God, I pray every time they come out with a new edition that it stays that way. Because that, if we changed that, then we change the recipe that we have, that we know works. Now, when I say we, I shouldn't say we, I should say they, they know works. Whenever they say we of Alcoholics Anonymous, they're not talking about us in this meeting. They're talking about them who wrote the book for me. Another interesting thing about the book is that it was written 21 years before I was even born. And my story is in the front part of the book. So, but I come to AA meetings and, you know, as far as I know, I'm 24. I'm the youngest guy in the room. Everybody else in Alcoholics Anonymous is 100, right? And, and they've all, you know, they all seem like they all drank Sterno under the bridges in Cleveland, right? They're just... They're all, and I, you know, they'd say, you know, identify, don't compare. And I would look around the room and I would see some of these people and I'm like, what am I doing here? And you may feel that way too, if you're new. I, I particularly like to kind of tailor the message 
of my story to the person that's new or maybe the person that's kind of forced to come here, you know, through some misunderstanding, uh, you know, you uh, like, you know, we have a, we have a jailhouse here in central Florida that's called 33rd street. Cause that's the street it's on. But we talk about, you know, if you find people that have been arrested for DUI in 33rd street, you'll always be able to pick out the alcoholic versus the unfortunate person who just happened to have too many drinks that one particular evening. Cause that person's going to say, man, I knew I shouldn't have had that third drink last night. I just knew I shouldn't have. And the alcoholic will say, man, I knew I shouldn't have gone up interstate four last night. And, and, uh, and that's fundamentally a difference between us. Right. And we talk about the obsession of wanting to drink like normal people. I don't want to drink like normal people. And the reason I don't want to drink like normal people is because when they have a couple of drinks, they get to like drink number two or three and they go, oh, I'm starting to feel it now. I better stop. I don't understand people like that. I look at people like that and I say, you got to drink through that, right? You got to keep going, press on. You know, the, the promised land is like six or seven more down the road from that. Because when I start to drink, Right. When they start drinking, they get a, they start to get a feeling that they're losing control and it's uncomfortable and they don't want that. I start drinking and I start to get a feeling like I'm starting to get in control. There's this part in the doctor's opinion that says they feel their alcoholic life is the only normal one. And I wondered what he meant by that when I first read it. But what I've come to understand for me is. The only time I ever felt like I was all in one place all at the same time was after I'd had a couple of drinks because of something else that he says in the doctor's opinion, when he says that we are restless, irritable, and discontent. And we hear that thrown around in meetings all the time. What unless, We're restless, irritable, and discontent unless we can again experience the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once from taking a few drinks. What that really is saying to me when I pull it apart and when I hold it up against my own resume, my own experience is my sober problem is my real problem. I couldn't stand being sober. I couldn't, it was too painful for me to be sober. I became, I remained, I should say, that person that felt like they were on that island by themselves. That's why so many of us come here carrying the flag you don't understand i'm different <clears throat> here's how right when i came in i had this preconceived idea that alcoholics anonymous was a bunch of 100 year old men cigar smoking cigarette smoking you couldn't see from one side of the meeting room to the other when i first got sober Cigar smoking, cigarette smoking, coffee drinking old men that couldn't handle their booze. And all they did was go to these meetings because in my area, there was a meeting here today. And then tomorrow night, 10 miles in one direction, there'd be a meeting. And the next night, 10 miles in the other direction, there'd be a meeting. And it was the same 150 people at these meetings. They all just kept, they all just like nomads. They just went from town to town and went to these stupid meetings. And that's all that you guys did. 
So that's what I thought AA was, right? And I would hear speakers and they would talk about, you know, my life was terrible and and uh, I got thrown out or I went to jail and then I came to AA and, and now everything is wonderful. And that's what I thought AA was. And it wasn't until I had been here for a while. And I'm a retread too, by the way. I got I, My first time in was November 22nd, 1985. I was issued a big book and a 24-hour a day book. And I went to meetings and I stayed for about four months. And I copped a resentment, which is what we all do. I, I didn't like what they were saying. And uh, so I, I'll show you I'll hurt me. I went back out for some serious drinking for about eight months. And just about everything that we talk about yet happened in that eight months. And I came back. And when I came back, same 150 people were going to the same meetings. They were talking about the same stuff. And they were laughing about things, you know, that some guy would be standing at the podium and he'd talk about, you know, and then I went home and I peed my pants and everybody burst into laughter. And I'm like, that's not funny, man. That just happened to me last Thursday. And uh, I, I wasn't, you know, and they said, if you want what we have. And I looked around the room and I said, I don't know if you got anything I want. And they talked about your big book. And I'm like, I have bigger books than that at home. And then they would say things like, the answer to all your problems is in the big book. And I said, well, you know, it's really not that big of a book because you don't understand. I'm different. I got all these problems, right? And I would come into meetings and I would, you know, whatever my crisis of the day was, I would get one of these old timers and, and I would be whining about whatever my crisis of the day was. And, you know, and they would just hit me with stuff and turn and walk away. I was complaining about something and, and I complained to this guy one too many times and he just stopped what he was doing and he looked at me and he said, I don't care if you stay sober. And that sounds horrible, right? That's like, that would never fly in a meeting right now. But I know exactly what he was talking. He says, I don't care if you stay sober. And he said, your mother wanted you to stay sober. Your father wanted you to stay sober. I'm sure your ex-wife wanted you to stay sober. Your kids would like you to stay sober and you don't care about any of them. So what difference does it make whether I care? And he turned and walked away. And there was another guy. I was complaining to him. He was the founder of my original home group. He started my original home group in 1948. A little old hunched over man with sort of a high pitched voice. And he kind of he kind of snorted through his nose when he talked, right? And he called everybody Joe because his memory was slipping a little bit. So everybody he called Joe. And I was complaining to him about a good friend of my dad's. And I was complaining about something. And he listened. And then he looked at me and he said, well, Joe, if nothing happens, you'll live till you die. And he turned around and walked away. And we think that they're being insensitive because, you know, these old timers back in the 80s, they didn't get the memo that we're so sensitive when we get sober and we need to be hugged. They were not afraid of telling me the truth because, and I'm this way too, Not I'm not as mean as they were, but I can be. But my thing is, is that I haven't, I have the option if I'm going to work with you, <clears throat> excuse me, I have the option of telling you the truth or being your buddy. And being your buddy might just kill you. 
being my buddy almost killed me. And I have the opportunity, I have the option, I have to tell you the truth. And, and I'm sorry, folks, but there's no gentle way to break an ego. And they knew this, right? Guys, I used to come in, you know, I had hair down to my butt and I had my leather shroud on and my chain drive wallet and my little knife on the side. And, you know, because I learned early on in, in my drinking career that if you acted crazy, it kept you out of a lot of fights. And so I used to act crazy. And I had this, my false bravado on in my leather shroud and all that stuff. And I'm sitting with my feet propped up in a chair in front of me. And one of these old farts comes walking by me in the meeting and says, you're too damn stupid for one chair. You should take two. And, but you got to understand they knew me, right? They knew me. And I later, you know, it didn't, it didn't really take long to figure out. I, you know, when I got sober, I was afraid they were going to kick me out. I don't know where I got that idea from either, but I, there was there was a respect for these people because their life worked and mine didn't. And um, I looked at my sponsor. I had a sponsor one time. They used to poke me in the chest all the time, and he would say, "You are the most ungrateful." And and I thought it was going to have a permanent indention right here in my chest from him poking me in the chest all the time. But I would look at him and I could tell by the look in his eyes that he wasn't doing it because he thought he was better than me. None of these guys were talking to me that way because they thought they were better than me. They weren't looking down on me. They were trying to get my attention. And some, some people will be offended by that. But, you know, sometimes it takes a lot to get a person's attention. The real deal is, is why am I here? Is there... Because there's a lot of people that come to Alcoholics Anonymous that have no idea why they're here. They think they do, and I thought I did. And I thought that Alcoholics Anonymous was about drinking, right? My sponsor said that to me one time. This was a different sponsor after I'd moved to Florida, and I came down here in, in, um, in 1989. And I was four years undrunk. I didn't drink and I went to meetings and I got active, right? That's what they tell you in the meetings. Don't drink and go to the meetings and get active. Do service work, right? Sweep the floors, take out the trash, wash coffee cups, wash ashtrays, you know, be there, be a greeter. And all those are wonderful things. And they'll keep you sober until they don't. And I was going to meetings and I was active. And I was on the steering committee for the group, the group conscience, trusted servants, right? I was doing that thing. I was on the board of directors for the clubhouse where the meeting met. And I was going to seven to 10 to 12 to 20 meetings a week. And I was actually even trying to sponsor people. I had no idea what sponsoring people meant because I was sponsorless. If, you're, if your sponsor doesn't have a sponsor, get a new sponsor. Otherwise, you just have one fool leading another. My own sponsorships, me sponsoring me, doesn't do me any good, right? Because here's the deal. In the, in the first step, it talks about uh, delusion. We don't talk a lot about denial. We talk about delusion. Delusion is when I don't know that I'm lying to you. Delusion is when I don't know 
what the real truth is. It's just what I think, what I perceive. Dr. Bob said this was a disease of perception. In the, in the first step in the big book, it talks about delusion. So here's the trouble with delusional thinking. The trouble with delusional thinking is that it's delusional thinking. And the person that has delusional thinking don't know they have delusional thinking because they suffer from delusional thinking. And so if you're, if you're in that state and you're trying to figure out how this thing works or how you're going to get well, the best that I could come up with was, was thinking or distracting myself to keep from drinking. And that's where we get these, these wonderful pieces of nonsense like my disease is out in the parking lot doing push-ups waiting for me and things like that. And, you know, don't drink and, and, you know, when they say, well, old Joe went back out drinking again. I wonder what happened. Well, he stopped going to meetings because that's what it looks like, right? Looks like he stopped going to meetings. But the truth of the matter is, is that stopping going to meetings just happens along the way. And drinking is always the last symptom to show up when I go back out, right? So anyways, I come to meetings and, I, and, and I'm going to these meetings and, and um, you know, like I said, you guys overdo everything, right? I go to a meeting for 150 people and we'd have to set up the tables and chairs and, and you know, we'd make these big vats of AA coffee, right? Those big silver shiny kegs of coffee. We'd make a couple of those and, and then we'd have the meeting. And while the meeting's going on, we'd go back and make another hundred cups of coffee. And, and then we would drink. So we would drink the coffee and then we'd have to, and then when the speaker finished, they'd say, well, join us for coffee and fellowship. And so we drink some more coffee and, and we'd tear the hall down and put everything away and wash all the cups and do all that sort of thing, take out the trash. And then they said, come on, kid, we're going out for coffee. And I'm like, oh my God, man, we just drank 300 cups of coffee, right? But going out for coffee meant we're going to stay out until the bars and the liquor stores are closed. And we're going to talk about being sober. And you're going to be on the inside seat of the booth so you can't escape. And then you go home. And, um, and, and you guys can drink an amazing amount of coffee and not have to get up and pee. And, and so we would go to the restaurant, we'd sit there and drink coffee until two or two 30 in the morning. And then they'd take me home and they'd say, we'll be back tomorrow to pick you up at seven for the meeting. And I'm like, you know, I, I, I don't know if I can go tomorrow. I got, you know, I got to polish my shoelaces or clean my fireplace tools or whatever. And they'd be like, this isn't a discussion. We're picking you up. And, uh, there was a lot of that. This isn't a discussion. Just get in the car. I got sober during the get in the car era of AA when they didn't give you a choice. You know, they and they also didn't say things like find somebody you like or somebody who has what you want and ask them to be your sponsor. Because I would have picked the guy that had the most gold and the prettiest girl and the nicest car. I didn't know anything about character. Um, so th that's who I would have chosen. The, the guy that's hip slick and cool like I was, like I wanted to be. And um, I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. So anyways, I'm not drinking. I'm going to meetings. I'm, you know, I'm staying active. And I'm talking to new people. And you can see the sadness in their face and their whole life is falling apart. And I would look at them and I'd say, you know, I know your life feels like this big ball of crap. But if you just don't drink and go to the meetings, everything's going to get better. And then I'd get in the car and go home and i'd say to myself when's it going to get better for you 
right? Because I hadn't had a drink in four years. Now, theoretically, I should be grateful and overjoyed and happy, but I wasn't. I was actually restless, irritable, and discontent. And the reason I was restless, irritable, and discontent is because I hadn't found anything to replace what alcohol was doing for me. Alcohol was my higher power. And I didn't do anything without drinking alcohol. Think about it this way, right? So you have a big problem come up. Did you ever do this? Did you ever have a big problem come up in your life and you stop and think about it and you go, geez, maybe I'll try to handle this one sober. See how that works out. I always included my higher power, which was Jack Daniels. And the same was true and is true in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I don't do anything without God being in the middle of it. But there was a path I had to take from here to there. And I'm going to try to describe that to you as fast as I can in this next few minutes. So I'm, I'm undrunk four years. I'm miserable. And I'm thinking about committing suicide. But my method of suicide was not going to go very well, and I won't go into the details of that, but it involved drowning. And then and the lake I was going to drive my truck into, I later discovered was only about three feet deep, so it just would have been another humiliating experience. And um, so I turned left at the end of that street. Instead of driving into the lake, I went down to the AA club, and I asked this guy named Virgil to sponsor me, and I said, be very careful what you tell me to do, Virgil, because I'm going to do it. And he gave me a he he gave me his book. He said, "Open this up and open it to the first page. And tell me what's on it." So I opened it to the first page that had writing on it, and I said, "It just says Alcoholics Anonymous." He said, "That's not the first page. Open it to the first page." Well, in your book, the very first piece of paper in the book when you open it is blank, and he said, "That's what you know, and that's where we'll start." Another one of those insensitive guys. And that's what you know, and that's where we're going to start. And, and the importance of that statement is not so much in how he said it, but what it was that he said. If I want to be the most successful in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I need to let go of everything I think I know, which is not easy for people like us, right? Because, you know, I know a little bit about everything. Right. I could be a nuclear physicist when I'm at the bar. Right. It wasn't enough to be a stagehand. I had to be like a roadie for the Rolling Stones or something. You know, I, I it wasn't uh, I always had to be just a little bit better than where I was. And in AA, there's a temptation to want to learn how to speak the lingo right away so that you're treated as if you're in the herd. And that's part of, you know, what some of us refer to as the death cult in AA. It's an unspoken thing, but it's it kind of goes like this. It's like, I'm going to go to the meeting and you're going to go to the meeting and we're going to talk about problems and stuff, but nobody's going to call you on your crap, right? Nobody's going to stop and say, well, what does your sponsor say about that? Or did you pray about that? We just We just let each other go. And people die of untreated alcoholism inside Alcoholics Anonymous meetings because nobody will talk to them about what's really going on. And I was a part of that for a long time. I, I, was, a, I was a fellowship sobriety person until it damn near killed me. 
whenever I hear somebody ask at the beginning of a meeting, does anyone have a topic today they would like to discuss? The first thing that runs through my mind is, does anybody have anything they don't want to talk to their sponsor about or pray about? Because that stuff needs to be taken care of with God and with my sponsor. And I understand it's okay to bring bring something to a meeting, especially if, you know, something tragic happened, man, I just want to go be with my people. I get it. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. And I'm not saying that fellowship meetings aren't great meetings. And I'm not saying that anybody has bad intention. I don't think there's anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous that wants to see anybody fail. But I think we have an awful lot of, Rob and I call them typhoid Marys running around. They mean well, but they're carrying the mess. So Virgil had me read. He'd say, read the doctor's opinion and call me. So I'd read it and I'd call him. Hey, I read the doctor's opinion. Read it again. Click. And then he would do the same. Read to page 30. Okay, I read up to page 30. Read it again. Click. And he just had me keep reading over and over again. Because he told me at the very beginning, um, I hope you can find yourself in this book. If you can find yourself in this book, then we have an answer that will help you. But if you can't, if you're really different, then we may not have an answer for you. You know, and as much as we'd love to have Alcoholics Anonymous be able to solve all the problems the way that we want to solve all the problems, the fact of the matter is, is that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. Which is to say that it's not a we program. We talk about that all the time. We say, oh, this is a we program. It is. And we do support each other. Don't get me wrong. We're here to be supportive of each other. The reason that I'm here at this godforsaken hour of the morning, giving this great talk that I'm giving, is because we're here to help each other and be supportive. But here's the thing. We did not make a decision that God either was or he wasn't. I had to do that. We did not pray my third step prayer. I have to do that. We did not take my inventory, although some of you may be right now, but we did not take my inventory. I have to do that. I have to confess my fifth step. I have to go to God and ask him to remove my shortcomings. I have to go out and make my amends, and I have to go out and do my maintenance. This is very much a me and God program. This is about me having an experience as opposed to a belief, right? So I came into AA believing in God. My problem was never that I didn't believe in God. My problem was that I believed there was a God and he was not too happy with me. And there was a guy that said to me, don't worry if you have a problem with God. He doesn't have a problem with you, but I didn't believe it. God was, when I was a kid growing up, God would gladly send me to hell for having long hair and an earring. Right. So I figured I was going to hell before I even knew how to get the ticket. And I didn't think that was fair. So I really didn't want a whole lot to do with God. But, but when we go through the steps, there's that hyphen in step one. And a lot of us read it like this I admitted I was powerless over alcohol. 
and in their head or in their mind or in their interpretation. And because of that, my life had become unmanageable. The only problem with that line of thinking for me is that that would, that would imply that if I stop drinking, my life will become manageable again. But that wasn't the case for me. Four years on drunk, my, I'm on plaintiff number two, four years on drunk. And I got two cars in the driveway that I can't tag or insure, and I'm being evicted from the house I'm renting. So four years of being undrunk, staying active, not drinking and going to meetings, everything should be wonderful, but it's not. My life is falling apart still for the second time now. And I kept having to start over and start over and start over. So to kind of shorten this up, I go through this process of working the steps, right? And, and, and step one is broken into two parts. There's step one, subsection A, I can't handle alcohol and any attempt to go back to it by me is gonna fail. And then there's step one, subsection B, which is that I'm not capable of, of running my own life successfully. I can run my own life, but all I do is run it into the ditch. Successfully, I can't manage my own life. That's why it says that in A, B, and C, we, that we were alcoholic and we could not manage our own lives. Two things, the doctor's opinion addresses that too, right? And there are separate things. They, they are related and alcohol certainly helps with the unmanageability and unmanageability certainly helps with the drinking part. But it's not my life is unmanageable because I drink. It's my life is unmanageable and I drink. And I didn't know that. Virgil said, your problem is you think Alcoholics Anonymous is about your alcohol. And I said, well, it's in the name. Isn't that what we're here for is don't drink and go to meetings and collect these little coins and get a cake every year? Isn't that what that's all about? And he said, no, it's about your life. And so he had me continue reading. And as he took me through the steps, here's the conclusion that I came to. In step two, I have to decide that there is a capital P power greater than myself. In step three, I make a decision to turn my will and my life over to that capital P power. And the reason I do that is because I came to believe in step two. And the reason that I take an inventory in step four is because I made a decision to turn my life over to God in step three. And the reason that I do a fifth step is because I did a fourth step. And on and on, right on through the steps. But here's the deal. Step three through seven is really one long continuous prayer. That's why there's no amen at the end of the third step prayer. It starts off with, God, I offer myself to you to build with me and do with me as you wilt, right? And as Rob likes to say, and I love this, it's so true, be careful when you pray that prayer because it won't be too long after you pray that prayer that God starts to wilt. And when God starts to wilt, he starts removing stuff around in your life. And I don't, you know, I don't want God to do that. I just want, you know, thank you for helping me with my drinking problems. Stay out of my sex life. Stay out of my finances, right? Stay out of my job. Because I just, you know, for, for as all as anyone knows, I'm St. Bruce with a drinking problem. Just, just fix the drinking problem, right? But I go on, step three says, the execution of step three is steps four through nine. 
or at least steps four through seven, but steps four through nine. When I pray that third step prayer, I ask God to come in and do with me what he will. And then there's a promise there. Uh-oh. There's a promise there that says, I think it's the gateway promise to all the promises in AA. And it says this, it says, being all powerful, he provided what we needed. And the evidence of that shows up in the middle steps. Here we ask God to do this. God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view. God will do this for me. God will do that for me. And then we get to the step nine promises that we talk about. And it says, we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so I'm giving you the crash course reader's digest version because I have four minutes and 29 seconds left. And, but you go through the middle steps and when you say amen at the end of the seven step prayer, you have completed a real prayer, not just a bunch of words, right? I can be spiritually magnificent for 30 seconds praying the third step prayer. I can be spiritually magnificent for an hour going to an AA meeting, which, by the way, if you really want to know how I'm doing, ask my wife. Don't ask me. Right. Go to Karina and say, how's he doing? And so and she'll tell you the truth. And some days, you know, I'm at, some days I'm an eight and some days I'm a two. Fortunately, I haven't been a zero and I know I'll never be a ten. So I'm in the middle of the scale most of the time. So anyway, we get to the end of the seven-step prayer, and we say amen, and that means that I've completed. It means so be it. So be it. I have asked God to take control of my life. I have told him what is going on in my life. I have admitted now some certain defects. Follow the five C's of the Oxford group, and you'll see what it is. Confidence. uh, Confidence. And they escape me right now because it's 7.53 and I'm on my first cup of coffee. But anyway, confidence, confession, conviction, conversion, and continuance. I have confidence that this program will work for me. If I go through the, as I go through the steps, I will have, I will make a confession, step four and five. I will have a conviction, step six and seven. I don't like these things about me. I don't want to do them anymore. God help me. Steps eight and nine is a conversion. The discipline of doing steps eight and nine is the way that God removes the defects of character. So don't spend a whole lot of time saying I'm working on my defects of character because the best I can do on my own is just polish them up a little bit, right? Not going to get angry today. Then you get out on I-4 and that's the day's over then. So there's those kind of things. And then, and then we get the discipline of 8 and 9 are the way God removes defects of character. The discipline of 10, 11, and 12 are the things that keep me on the beam because I can't be, I can't be grateful and intolerant at the same time. I can't be spiritual and intolerant at the same time. Now, I can be angry about stuff and try to be spiritual, but I can't focus. The moment I focus my energy on what I'm pissed off about, I'm not focused on the, on the spirituality of my life. So I'll end with this, because this really is the, is the summary of, of any kind of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, uh, discussion as far as the program is concerned, as far as what they were trying to convey to us in our book. We read it at almost every meeting. If you have decided you want what we have, 
And we look around the room like I did and go, I don't know. It's looking at this group of people, I don't know if you have anything I want. That's not what they're talking about. If you've decided you want what we have and you're willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. Well, what is it that they have? And so I would refer you to page 25. And if you are thorough in working this program, then these things will happen for you. And they have happened for me and they continue to happen for me. And it's the summary of every promise that is in our book. And it just goes like this. If you decided you want what we have, well, they tell us at the top of page 25, there's a solution. You're probably not going to like it because none of us did. It's going to require doing things I don't want to do. But then it tells me what it is they have. And what they say is, is we have found much of heaven and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we'd not even dreamed, which, by the way, is the ability to live right now without distraction without worrying about yesterday or tomorrow, living in the now. We have been rocketed into this fourth dimension of existence of which we'd not even dreamed. The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. Last point. And then it says the central fact of their life when they wrote this book, and the central fact of my life today is the absolute certainty that God has entered into my heart and life in a way which is indeed miraculous, and he has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves, right? So if something else, <clears throat> if, you're if your job or your relationship or your whatever is, not the, is the central fact of your life today, then go back and re-examine where you are in the steps, the current state of your third step, the current state of your first step, et cetera. And you will find that the way that I find peace and serenity and happiness and the way that I can be sober and happy at the same time is to have the central fact of my life be the absolute certainty that God has done all this. And I've run out of time. Thank you so much for uh, letting me share today. Thank you, Stacy, for asking me. And um, God bless all of you. Good morning. And that was Bruce from AA 1.0. It's not searchable on the online intergroup AA, but if you message me at aasolutionseekers at gmail.com, I will gladly send you the link to his big book studies Tuesdays at 1.30. Thanks for joining us.